Hey guys, this is the God Besotted Podcast, and I'm your host, Karina. I'm so excited to continue in our series on the attributes of God. We're going to look at God's jealousy in this episode. What does it mean that God is jealous? Is jealousy a good thing? And what does God's jealousy have to do with us? I think it's going to be a good time, so let's just get right into it. What comes into your mind when you think of jealousy? For most of us, I would venture a guess that the word conjures up negative images or connotations or associations. We might think of a suspicious, controlling husband whose jealousy stems from insecurity and pride and results in abuse. Or we might think of a wife who steals her husband's phone while he's in the shower to comb through his Instagram messages out of distrust and fear. Maybe you think of sibling rivalry or workplace drama. Because of the way that we use jealousy in English, it can be hard at first to figure out what the Bible means when it uses this word about God. Is jealousy a good thing? What does it mean when it's used about God? We're going to dive into some scriptures in this episode and hopefully come away with this main idea. God's jealousy is his commitment to preserving his supremacy and is an expression of his love for us. God is the only one who will truly satisfy us and the only one who deserves all honor and worship. The negative examples that we all likely have in our minds of jealousy are all examples of sinful jealousy. When people are sinfully jealous, it means they desire to possess something that is not rightfully theirs. So I'm jealous of your house decor. A man is jealous of someone else's wife. The word envy in English would best sum up this sin of jealousy. But sometimes jealousy is positive or is the proper response to a situation. For example, if a husband didn't mind that his wife was out cheating on him, we'd wonder, right? Does he really love her? Feeling jealousy because your spouse is being unfaithful would be right in that context. And when the word jealous is used of God, of course, it's not sinful. God's jealousy is right. His motives are pure and loving. So let's look at God's jealousy to clear up some of this confusion and really understand it in the context of Scripture. God's jealousy, as I said before, is his commitment to preserving his supremacy and is an expression of his love for us. We'll start with the first part of that definition, supremacy. God is committed to preserving his supremacy or his honor. God is jealous for his own honor. Wayne Grudem defines God's jealousy that way. He says God's jealousy means that God continually seeks to protect his own honor. We'll see this in Exodus 20. You'll remember that Exodus 20 is where we find the Ten Commandments. In that chapter, God gives the law to Israel at Mount Sinai. He gives the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone to Moses. And through those commandments, he makes a covenant with his people. He promises them certain benefits if they keep the terms of the covenant, if they obey. And on the flip side, he promises also to uphold certain stipulations to meet certain requirements or expectations on his end as well. So Exodus 20 verses 1 through 6 says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, 
but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So here we see in Exodus 20 that God closely relates his name, his name which represents all that he is and does, to his jealousy. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. That word Lord is capitalized in your Bible because it's showing that God is using his covenant name, Yahweh. And so he tells his people not to worship any other God and not to make images of other gods, not to worship or serve anyone or anything else. Why? Because he says, I, the Lord, Yahweh, your covenant king, your God, am a jealous God. God's jealousy is the reason that God gives underlying these first two commandments. Don't have any other gods and don't make images of other gods. Why? Because I am a jealous God. So what is he jealous for? We're starting to see it even here. He is jealous for the glory of his name. God revealed himself to Israel and he chose to relate to them by this covenant name, Yahweh. And he wants to be known not only by Israel, but also by all the nations as the one true God. As his people obey the covenant, it would demonstrate to Israel and to the nations the truth that God is a good God. He is a great king, the one true God who is worthy of all honor and worship. But if the people don't obey, if they worship other gods, it says to the nations and to Israel that God is not worthy of all honor and worship. I heard this quote probably 10 years ago from John MacArthur, and it has stayed with me. He said, your testimony either tells the truth about God or it tells a lie. The people's obedience to the covenant was a witness that God truly is all that he says. But their disobedience would send the false message that God is not good and not worthy. It would sully God's reputation and their disobedience would dishonor his name. The goal of preserving his supremacy as God, this jealousy that God has, drives God to do all that he does. It is his primary goal. He acts with this view in mind always. In Isaiah 42, 8, God says, I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise, the praise I am due to graven images. So God is jealous for the honor of his name. He eagerly guards and acts in protection of his reputation. That is what jealousy means. The power of a name of a reputation is so important, even in our culture. Just look at Amber Heard and Johnny Depp. They're suing each other for defamation and the whole world is watching to see what the outcome will be. These two people are in a battle for their reputations to clear their names because reputation matters even more so with God. And so in a few chapters later in Isaiah, Isaiah 48, 11, God says, for my own sake, for my own sake, I will act. For how can my name be profaned? And my glory, I will not give to another. God's dealings with Israel, his dealings with the church, his dealings with the nations and the world in all of history are all in view of a single goal, and that is his glory. So what happened 
After this encounter in Exodus 20 between Moses and God on Mount Sinai, after Moses received those two tablets of stone with the commandments, the stipulations of the covenant, what happened? Moses went down and found that the people had already been committing idolatry. They had already so quickly forgotten their commitment to serve God only, and they had made a golden calf to bow down to and to worship. And so a few chapters later, after Moses deals with this, in Exodus 34, Moses has already shattered those Ten Commandments. He was so angry when he saw the people committing idolatry that he shattered them on the floor. So a few chapters after this, God, uh, Moses goes back up to Mount Sinai and begs God not to forsake the people. And so God recommits to the covenant that he had made with Israel. He says, Behold, I am going to make a covenant. And as we've said, a covenant has stipulations. It has things that each person in the covenant vows to do. God vows to protect and bless his people. And his people had terms to fulfill as well. And one of those terms, once again, in Exodus 34, is that they're not to make a covenant with anyone else. They are not to commit idolatry by worshiping any other God. Exodus 34:14, God says, watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. God is saying you're going into the land of Israel, which I've promised you, but there are other nations living there. You're not to make a covenant with them. You're not to bind yourself to them, or it will become a snare. But rather, he says, you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall not worship any other god for the Lord whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Again, in the context of these covenant stipulations, God mentions jealousy. This time he says his name is Jealous. That means that God is characterized by holy jealousy. Jealousy is who he is and what he does. Jealousy is intrinsic to his nature. The Lord, my name is Jealous. I am a jealous God. First and foremost, as we've been saying, this jealousy means that he will not give his glory to another. He deserves all honor and all praise, and he will not give it to an idol. He will act to preserve his supremacy and protect his honor. He will not be defamed among the nations by his people going and running off with other lovers. And this brings us to an important discussion that will help refine our understanding of God's jealousy. God's covenant with his people is often pictured in both the Old and New Testaments in terms of a marriage relationship. For example, in Isaiah 54, 5, it says, Your husband is your maker, whose name is the Lord of hosts, and your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who is called the God of all the earth. In Hosea 2, 19 and 20, God says to his people, I will betroth you to me forever. That's a picture of marriage. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. Then you will know the Lord. And it's no different in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we find this marriage uh, picture to be the case as well. For example, in Ephesians 5, we learn in that famous passage that human marriage between a husband and a wife is actually a mysterious picture of Christ's love for the church and the church's commitment and love for Christ. 
And importantly, the marriage picture in the New Testament also re-emphasizes God's commitment to his supremacy, his all-important goal of glorifying himself. The church, we learn in the New Testament, was called before the foundation of the world. Why? To bring glory to God through Christ. In that passage on marriage in Ephesians 5, which describes the roles of husband and wife, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So the relationship between the church and Christ is pictured as a marriage relationship. And the goal of this relationship is for the church to be presented to Christ in glory. Earlier in Ephesians, in chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, Paul praised God and he said, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God's goal through the church is to bring glory to himself. That is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 2, I am jealous for you. He was jealous for the Corinthian believers with a godly jealousy. I betrothed you to one husband so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. As the church, we have been betrothed to Christ, and godly jealousy looks like protecting and preserving the glory of God's name by ensuring that the church is exclusively devoted to Christ. No one else, no other gospel. So we find in Scripture, in both the Old and the New Testament, that God chose to call a people to himself and made a covenant with them, a covenant as binding as a marriage. In fact, even more binding because it lasts forever. And God did it to glorify himself. His work in Israel and his work in the church is to bring himself glory. So he's jealous for the sake of that glory, for the sake of his great name. He will not tolerate his people whom he called and chose defaming him by running off to worship anything or anyone other than him. Someone might be thinking right about now, as you're listening to this, where exactly is love in this? I don't see this as loving per se. It seems sort of selfish for God to do, like God called this people and covenanted with them out of the ulterior motive of just wanting to make much of himself. Is that loving? But when we look a bit closer at the picture in scripture of God's relationship with his people being like a marriage, we will see that it actually clarifies that God's jealousy is not only a commitment to preserving his supremacy, to protecting his honor, as we've been saying, but God's jealousy is also an expression of his deep love for us. So that's the second part of the definition we gave earlier, that God's jealousy is his commitment to preserving his supremacy and is an expression of his love for us. We have to remember that Exodus 20, where God gives the Ten Commandments and he makes a covenant with his people, comes on the heels of God's deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. 
God rescued this people, and he who had proven himself to be merciful and kind willingly entered a covenant with them that would bind him to continue to be merciful and kind to them. It built upon the covenant he had earlier made with Abraham, where he had promised blessings to Abraham out of the goodness of his heart. God vowed to stick by this people in sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, never to be parted even by death, out of love. Let's go to Ezekiel 16, and we will see this in sharper focus. In Ezekiel 16, verse 1, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, that is Ezekiel, make known to Jerusalem her abominations, and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are from the land of the Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite, and your mother a Hittite. As for your birth, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water for cleansing. You were not rubbed with salt or even wrapped in cloths. No eye looked with pity on you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for you were abhorred on the day you were born. When I passed by you and saw you squirming in your blood, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you while you were in your blood, live. I made you numerous like plants of the field. Then you grew up, became tall, and reached the age for fine ornaments. Your breasts were formed and your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. Then I passed by you and saw you, and behold, you were at the time for love. So I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. I also swore to you and entered into a covenant with you so that you became mine, declares the Lord God. Then I bathed you with water, washed off your blood from you, and anointed you with oil. I also clothed you with embroidered cloth and put sandals of porpoise skin on your feet, and I wrapped you with fine linen and covered you with silk." I adorned you with ornaments, put bracelets on your hands and a necklace around your neck. I also put a ring in your nostril, earrings in your ears, and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your dress was of fine linen, silk, and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour, honey, and oil, so you were exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. Then your fame went forth among the nations on account of your beauty, for it was perfect because of my splendor, which I bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. But you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot because of your fame. And you poured out your harlotries on every passerby who might be willing. You took some of your clothes and made for yourself high places of various colors and played the harlot on them, which should never come about nor happen. You also took your beautiful jewels made of my gold and of my silver, which I had given you, and made for yourself male images that you might play the harlot with them. Then you took your embroidered cloth and covered them and offered my oil and my incense before them. Also my bread, which I gave you, fine flour, oil, and honey with which I fed you, you would offer before them for a soothing aroma. So it happened, declares the Lord God. Moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you had borne to me and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Were your harlotries so small a matter you slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. 
Besides all your abominations and harlotries, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare and squirming in your blood. Verse 30 says, How languishing is your heart, declares the Lord God, while you do all these things, the actions of a bold-faced harlot. Verse 35, Therefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Because your lewdness was poured out and your nakedness uncovered through your harlotries with your lovers and with all your detestable idols, and because of the blood of your sons which you gave to idols, therefore, behold, I will gather all your lovers with whom you took pleasure, even all those whom you loved and all those whom you hated. I will gather them against you from every direction and expose your nakedness to them that they may all see your nakedness. Thus, I will judge you like women who commit adultery or shed blood are judged, and I will bring on you the blood of wrath and jealousy. I will also give you into the hands of your lovers, and they will tear down your shrines, demolish your high places, strip you of your clothing, take away your jewels, and will leave you naked and bare. They will incite a crowd against you, and they will stone you and cut you to pieces with their swords. They will burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. Then I will stop you from playing the harlot, and you will also no longer pay your lovers. So I will calm my fury against you, and my jealousy will depart from you, and I will be pacified and angry no more. Because you have not remembered the days of your youth, but have enraged me by all these things, behold, I in turn will bring your conduct down on your own head, declares the Lord, so that you will not commit this lewdness on top of all your other abominations. Verse 60, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed when you receive your sisters, both your older and your younger. And I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. Thus, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, so that you may remember and be ashamed and never open your mouth anymore because of your humiliation. When I have forgiven you for all that you have done, the Lord declares." Those verses speak for themselves. That is why I didn't offer commentary throughout. As you listen to God's judgment upon Israel and yet his compassion upon Israel, you hear that Ezekiel 16, this passage, is vividly describing God's relationship with Israel from start to finish. How he cared for his people like a father when he found them naked, bare, abandoned, unloved. And then he loved his people like a husband. And he remained committed to his people despite their harlotry, their brazen harlotry. And when his people ran off with other lovers, God's jealous wrath allowed them to experience the heartbreak and the devastation 
of their alliance with people and things that could never, ever satisfy them and that would never give them the security and the love that he has for them. Out of jealousy, he let them experience the consequences for their sin. Why? He says in verse 43, to protect them from further sin. He says, I brought your conduct down on your own head so you won't commit this lewdness on top of all your other abominations. I stopped you in your sin to protect you, not only from the sin which will give you heartbreak, but from the consequences of the sin which will completely decimate you. And then, because God is a husband to his people, a husband who is jealous for them, who guards the exclusiveness of their relationship out of love, God remains committed to them. After 59 verses of describing the judgment, the the flagrant uh, disregard for his honor and his love for them that his people have shown by running off with other lovers and committing spiritual ad- adultery, God says in verse 60, nevertheless, <laughs> nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth. He says, I made a promise. I made a commitment that I would stay no matter what. And so God says, I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to forgive you for all that you've done. I'm going to establish my covenant with you. That is love. And so we see through these passages that divine jealousy, God's jealousy, is both protective and possessive. It is an expression of, an outworking of, a byproduct of real, true love. Yes, it's a love that will not tolerate sin or faithlessness, but it's real love. It's real compassion. It is not a love that's going to allow someone to destroy themselves by sin. God won't allow that. So he allows them to experience consequences, but it's so that he can bring them back to himself. His love for them never ceased. God is jealous for his people. He will remain true even when his people reject him. So God's desire to draw his people back to himself stems from a commitment to ensure that his reputation among the nations is never sullied. It's important that God shows the nations he is the one true God. But it also comes as an expression of love. God knows that it's only in right relationship with him that his people will have true joy and true satisfaction. So he draws them back. He restores the relationship. He keeps being patient when we are wayward because he loves us. He brings us back constantly because he knows it's only in his presence that there is fullness of joy. It's only at his right hand that there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 36, 7 and 8 says, How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light we see light. And so God's jealousy means he will protect his own honor, and he will guard the exclusiveness of the relationship between him and his people. But we come back to the question, is that loving? Is God's jealousy really loving? There's a Desiring God article by an author named Matthew Barrett that sums this up very well. He writes, If God is the perfect being, someone than whom none greater can be conceived, then he would be selfish to point us to something or someone else for our true joy and eternal happiness. Indeed, he would be unloving. For if he is the supreme being, 
then the greatest joy and happiness in life can be found in him and him alone. In the end, the most loving thing God can do is require his glory to be foremost in our lives. So how do we do that? How do we respond to God's jealousy? That brings us to the second point. We are to give God our exclusive love and worship. So we've seen that we are called not to be idolaters because our God is a jealous God, because his name is jealous. Most of us don't bow down to statues or we don't make golden calves out of earrings, but we still commit idolatry. We still dishonor God by giving the glory that is due only to him to another person or to something or to ourselves. Whenever our hope and our joy and our security is in something other than God, we are committing idolatry. We are cheating on God. And again, in Scripture, in the New Testament, our relationship with God is compared to marriage in this context. In the book of James, James rebukes the believers that he's writing to about praying for the wrong reasons. And he relates this idolatry to spiritual adultery. James 4, 4 through 5 says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. What James is saying is you can't be friends with the world and friends with God. Your desires, he's telling them, are showing when you pray. You're either praying for the right things for the wrong reasons, or you're just outright praying for the wrong things. And you're doing it because your heart doesn't belong fully to God. And so James is warning them. They're believers. But he's saying, do you think that God's word is saying he's jealous for nothing? He is jealous for your love and worship. He wants you exclusively. He will not share you. And he will act on behalf of his name in your life when you are faithless. Scripture says when we are faithless, he is faithful because he cannot deny himself. And sometimes being faithful to his promises to us, to bring us near to him, to make us holy and set apart as he is, This faithfulness involves allowing us to experience consequences for sin, letting it hurt when our love is misplaced, showing us that when we love and worship anything or anyone other than God, we are sowing heartbreak and pain for ourselves. We're in Christ, so we cannot be cast off. God will always keep us in his love. But as we've seen through these various scriptures, God's love is a jealous one. He will not stand by and watch while we commit idolatry. In Psalm 39, verses 7 through 11, this is the NIV, David says to God, And now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in you. Save me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of fools. I was silent. I would not open my mouth, for you are the one who has done this. Remove your plague from me. I am overcome by the blow of your hand. When you rebuke and discipline anyone for their sin, you consume as a moth what is precious to him. David prays that God would deliver him from sin, and he acknowledges that God was the one who was opposing him, who was allowing hardship in his life because of his sin. 
He says, I'm perishing under your opposition. Deliver me from sin so I won't experience its consequences anymore. The Nazbi says, with reproofs you chasten a man for iniquity. You consume as a moth what is precious to him. God will consume what is precious to us when our loves are misordered, when he is not receiving our exclusive love, worship, and devotion. I'm not sure if you've noticed, but it's common to hear God praised as an all-consuming fire in worship songs. I did a quick Google search, and one website gave me pages and pages of different worship songs where this phrase comes up. It's often followed by, you're my one desire. So God is an all-consuming fire, you're my one desire. And the reason I looked that up is because there is a worship song I enjoy that says, if your glory wants to come in, let it fall. We want it all. Lord, your fire is consuming. Fill this place, set it ablaze. I'll be a living sacrifice for you. And later, the song repeats the phrase, which I'm not fond of, and I'll tell you why. You're a fire, the refiner. I want to be consumed. Now, I just said I do enjoy the song because I appreciate the sentiment behind it. I appreciate the thought. But I've never liked that the song presents God as a consuming fire as though it's a positive thought to be consumed by God. In my opinion, being consumed with God is positive. Being God-besotted, obsessed with God, in love with God is positive. And if someone can show me in scripture where it is, I'll take this all back. But the scriptures that I'm familiar with that reference God as a consuming fire have to do with God's jealousy, specifically his jealous wrath which goes out when his name is dishonored by his people straying from him. The passages that talk about God as a consuming fire are a warning to God's people. They're not heartwarming. They're a warning. Moses compares God's jealousy to a consuming fire in Deuteronomy 4, 23 and 24. He says, so watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you and make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. He's saying, don't forget the covenant. Do not make a graven image. Why? Verse 24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And lest we think that this imagery is limited only to the Old Testament, it comes up in the New Testament. In Hebrews 12, verses 28 to 29, the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The fact that God is jealous by nature, that his name is jealous, is amazing because it means that he will protect us. He will guard his relationship with us. He cares deeply for us, but it is also a warning. It's a warning against lukewarm love for God and unfaithfulness to God. As God's people, we are called to have undivided hearts, but we can't do that on our own. Even when we are in Christ, we need the Holy Spirit to continually help us order our loves aright. In Psalm 86, David prays for an undivided heart. He asks for it. He says in verse 8, There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. So he acknowledges God's supremacy. 
Then in verse 9, All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. David acknowledges that God's goal, which he will carry out, is to be glorified among the nations, to protect his honor, his reputation. Verse 10, For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. And then he asks in verse 11, Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. It's divided. It's pulled this way and that by the things in the world, by my own sin. Unite my heart to fear your name. Verse 12, I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forever. So may the Holy Spirit, may God himself, unite our hearts so that we worship and love God exclusively. And may we remember, as Ezekiel 16 encourages us, the days of our youth, the mess we were in when God found us, our hopelessness without him, and the mercy that he lavished on us to bring us to him and to crown us with beauty and to promise to stay even when we stray. And may God jealously guard the simplicity and the purity of our devotion to Christ so that the work he began in us will be completed. Thank you so much for listening to the God Besotted podcast. I am so grateful for every opportunity I get to share God's word with you so we can all know God more deeply and love him and his people more. If you're loving this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a rating and a review wherever you listen to the podcast. And make sure you join me each Monday as we continue this series on the attributes of God. And don't forget to come find me on Instagram at God underscore besotted. I would love to connect with you there. Until next time, may we be God besotted in all we do.